Well, this morning as we start, I want you to think about the most distinct food that you've ever had. Maybe it's some exotic food that you tried once. Maybe the distinct food is the the taste of something your mom used to make you or something that your favorite restaurant makes really well. Right, so think about the distinctness. You can probably already start to taste it. It's probably not wise to start out with a food illustration because then you're going to think about lunch. But think, think with me. You can, you can taste it. You, can, you know what it's like, right? Well, the research would tell us that even though we think we are very uh, observant and can tell exactly in our minds what it's like, if we were to put a blindfold on and have a blind taste test, it would be really hard to actually pick that food out. Because when we taste food, it's more than just our tongue that tastes it. Or we see it with our eyes, we smell it, there are all the senses engaged in it that help us understand what's distinct about it. And so you can test that on your own. You might have seen it on a cooking show or other things where they do these blind taste tests. And it's actually really hard to do, hard to pick out what is the distinct food, the distinct flavor. And so that distinctness can sometimes start to blur. But that idea of distinctness is really what our passage is about this morning. There's a major theme in our chapter, and we see that when we look at Jesus, he's distinct. And we don't have to uh, get confused or guess what he is like. We have all of our faculties to be able to see how distinct he is and how distinct and different and far above everyone else he is. And so in this morning, we see the distinctness of Jesus on display. And our passage this morning is Matthew chapter 9. We'll do verses 1 through 34. Matthew 9, 1 through 34 is our passage this morning. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there and read along or listen as we read the word of God. This morning, the word of the Lord says this. Getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And Jesus reclined at table in the house 
As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we fast and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will tear away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman had suffered, who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed, demon-oppressed man who was mute, was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. And so we see this passage really is very similar to Matthew 8, what we looked at last week. We see a lot of healing. We see a lot of miracles take place. But really, in this chapter, we, get, we start to get this glimpse, this peek behind the curtain, so to speak. And Jesus begins to teach us why. Why is he doing this? Why is he healing? Why is he performing these miracles? And so as we look at this chapter, we'll make some observations. We'll get to see why he's doing all of this. And as we start just in the first few verses here, we see that Jesus is distinct. We see that he heals this paralyzed 
man. Right? These friends were probably familiar with the story. The friends bring the paralyzed man to Jesus. He can't calm himself. He needs them to bring them. And Jesus looks at him and he says, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And so just notice there what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not heal the man immediately. Right? They don't bring him, and Jesus doesn't just heal him. In fact, as we're reading this story, we kind of get the impression that if the Pharisees didn't say anything or didn't think about it in this way, then Jesus might not have healed this man. But what does Jesus do? He said, you are forgiven. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And this is really what this man needed, right? This is a burden. We read this morning Psalm 32 where David talks about sin being a burden. It just is this weight inside of his soul. It eats away at his bones. It, it makes him groan. It's this weight upon us. It's this sin. But under this weight of sin, this heat of sin, when we acknowledge our sin to God, when we don't try to cover up our sin, but we confess it, then God forgives us. You remember the promise, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? And when that happens, then, then there is this burden lifted. There is this joy. We are no longer condemned or guilty but we have forgiveness. This is, this is what Jesus says to us this morning. If you are a Christian this morning, Jesus looks at you and says, take heart, be encouraged. Your sins are forgiven. This is what this man needed to hear. This is what we need to hear. Usually we think about healing and we think, the most important thing, the thing I need most right now is for this pain to be taken away, for life to get better, for life to be easier, to not have to go through this trial continually. That's what our heart wants. And frankly, it'd be strange if our heart didn't want that, right? But Jesus points us to this deeper need that we have, this need for forgiveness because that is where we can have encouragement, we can have joy, even in the midst of going through these trials. Paul said, even as our outer man is wasting away, we are being renewed. And it's through this forgiveness. And so that's a truth for us to remember personally, and it's, it's really a truth for us to be able to share with others. I don't know if you've been in this situation before, but this passage really helps us to know how we can encourage other people. So if you know someone who's not feeling well, you go to visit someone in a hospital or take them a meal, and sometimes you might have this thought that, I really just don't know what to say. What can I say to help this person feel better, to encourage them? I don't know that they're going to get better. I don't know. Uh, I can't imagine the pain they're feeling. How can I make them feel better, be encouraged in this moment. Sometimes we have those thoughts. We wonder, what can I say to help in this? 
But Jesus here points us to something that does encourage. This, this word, this take heart, this, this is encouragement. He's encouraging this man with this spiritual reality. It's, it's really a reminder to us that we can't forgive sins, but we know the one who can and does. And when we talk to people, we can encourage them by not just talking about the physical, what's going on, but what is going on spiritually. What, what has God done? What is God doing? What will God do? And so we can talk about how that person's been an encouragement to us in our life. We can pray with them and thank God that he's forgiven us and made us a part of his family. We can think about what's to come and what heaven will be like one day. Encouragement comes from the state of our souls. And so in order to give this encouragement, we need to dig deeper below the surface and think about spiritual things. That's how Jesus encourages this man. And so even if someone's physical condition is something we don't know about or we don't know if we'll get better, Jesus tells us there is still encouragement to be given that can be had in that moment. So this is the reality. It's always a timely reminder to us as people get sick around us, as we are getting older and never getting younger, right? This reality that we can remember that our greatest problem is not our physical condition, but is the sin in our lives, the sin that separates us from God, and the sin that continues even after we're Christians to, to harm our relationship with him. And Jesus forgives that sin. That God wants us to remember these bigger realities. And we see that in this passage. Not just here at the beginning as Jesus forgives sin do we see it. But we see it throughout. We see in verses 18 through 26 as Jesus raises the dead. And as he heals this woman with this flow of blood, we see these same realities. This woman had this flow of blood, which would have not just been physically painful, but it you might have heard it would have made her ceremonially unclean in Israel. So she couldn't be a part of the church service, so to speak. She was, uh, in that sense, an outcast. She couldn't be a part of gatherings or society. She was, She was just always isolated in that way, especially from the spiritual life of Israel. And so Jesus, as he heals her, he makes her clean as well, as well, right? He does this not just for her, but really when we think about our lives, this is what Jesus does for us as well, that our problem is this, this outcast, being outcast, this separation where we cannot gather close to God and be a part of his family, a part of his people because of our sin that is continual in us. But Jesus reaches out. He cleanses us. He heals us. He brings us close. And so now God doesn't look at, he doesn't look at us and think we're unworthy or less than or broken. But he looks at us and says, we are clean. We're made right. We're holy in his eyes. Our sin has been dealt with. And it's no longer this burden on us. 
And sometimes we read this passage and we have this tendency to skip over the fact that Jesus actually raised someone from the dead. (laughs) That is amazing. He raised someone from the dead. He did not just rise himself, but he was able, he foreshadowed, so to speak, his power that he is able to bring life where there is none. He raises someone from the dead. And in this, he is, like I said, foreshadowing that sin, that death will not defeat him, that he has more power. He will rise. And so he has power not to just rise himself, but to raise us as well. We will be raised up if we are with Jesus. And so in this passage, as Jesus is healing, he's pointing us to these realities that it's not just the outer that matters, but we have this need of life, of cleansing, of forgiveness. Even with the blind man, we see we have this need to see. We're blind, we need to see. And this is what Jesus does. He brings these things to us. It's a reminder to us of a reframing, a recalibrating of our minds of how we think about life. And this is the reason followers of Jesus can have joy. We have this weight taken off of us. So Jesus does this. No one else can do this. Who else can do something like this? Right? This chapter shows his distinctness. He's distinct from the religious leaders of the day. It's not just Jesus is another moral teacher who's doing good and going around and teaching things. No, he's completely different. The Pharisees recognize that and they fought back against him. We see that start in this chapter, right? They begin to to question him, to accuse him. We'll see the violence start to escalate against him. Because they understand that Jesus is distinct. He's not like them. He's teaching something totally different. And here we also see not just do they recognize he's distinct, but he's doing different things, right? They, they see this. He's not like them. So what does he do? He calls his disciples to himself. Verses 9 through 13, we saw that. We read that. This is not a common practice during the day. Back then when you were a teacher, people would come and find you. They wanted to follow you. It was on them to come and find you and attach themselves to you, almost like an apprenticeship. And then they would have to follow you. And it was on you as the follower. But here Jesus is doing the opposite. He is calling people to follow him. He's not waiting for them to come to him. He's saying he's going to them. He went to Matthew. He said, come, follow me. He went to the disciples. He said, come, follow me. And there's something really important in this truth. That Jesus, as he eats with the tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees ask him that question, that incriminating question, why are you eating with those people? Why are you eating with them? Jesus says, it's not healthy people who need a doctor. It's sick people. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
What a great verse. What a great verse to memorize if you need something to memorize. But Jesus, he didn't just wait for people to come to him, right? He saw that people were sick and he went to them. He knew they were sinners and that sickness, that sin brought death. We see that in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And so Jesus knew that they weren't getting up out of the casket and coming to follow him if they were dead in their sins. He had to go to them, and he did. He didn't just call them sinners. He did say that. We shouldn't skip over that. He says they are sinners. The sinners are the people he came to. He called them sinners, right? But then he doesn't just label them that. He moves close to them. He goes towards them, and he changes them, right? This is the, the mercy of God. We see this passage say, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus didn't just wait in the temple doing his daily sacrifices and wait for people to come and follow him. He mercifully went to them, even though that's not what they deserved. And he preached this message. He saved them. This is what Jesus is doing. This is his distinctness. And so as followers of Jesus, we understand that we're, we're supposed to be distinct as well. We're called to do this. First John says that we're supposed to walk just as Jesus walked. And so if we're supposed to imitate Jesus, then it would mean that we don't wait. We cannot wait for people to just notice us and what we're doing and come ask us about it or come seek after it, right? You've probably heard stories about someone will be driving by a church. And this happens. I've heard these stories. I've met people like this. They'll be driving past a church and they'll just have this thought, this move inside of them, which could only be described as the Holy Spirit. And they'll have this sense that they need to stop. They need to go. They need to be a part of whatever's going on at that church, and that happens, and that is real, but usually that's not how God works, right? Jesus didn't say, wait for the people to come to you. He said, go and make disciples. He came and he called, and he tells us to go and call people to himself as well. And so you, me, we need to start that conversation with other People, Don't wait for them. Don't wait for your friends or neighbors to ask you about it. But how can you start that conversation with them and imitate Jesus and call them just like he does here? And so you hear the call of Jesus and you're following him. And in the verses following, we see that those who follow Jesus, they live in this new way. We see that in verses 14 through 17, right? There's this life full of joy, this newness in following Jesus. And so we'll talk more about this as we go through the book of Matthew. We see this idea come up more about the, the oldness of the command and the newness of following Jesus. So we won't go in depth to that here, but just notice here the motivation for why we live differently, right? The disciples live differently because they were close to Jesus. In other words, they followed a person 
And that led to a different kind of experience, a different kind of life than just following after a set of rules and commands. It wasn't about the commands, so to speak, but the rules, the, the, the person that they were following. And so this newness was because they followed Jesus. And that's what Christianity is. It's not just these are the commands in the Bible that we're supposed to keep. But it's that we now have a relationship with God. We're a part of his family and there is joy in knowing Jesus. Did you catch that in this passage? The reason the disciples didn't fast is because they were with Jesus. There was joy. They were right there with him. They didn't have to wait for him to come. They weren't expecting him in the future, right, and waiting to see him face to face like we are. No, he was right there with them. And so the presence of Jesus impacted what they did and it impacted how they felt. They were joyous. They had happiness and gladness because of Jesus being with them, right? And so it, it really makes us look at our own life and think, do we have this joy in our life? Do we enjoy being close to Jesus? Right? Dwell for a second on that. The sweetness there is in seeing how God provides for you or that, that awestruck feeling you get when you learn some new great truth about God the, the security we have when we know him and we know that he hears us and will never let us go, right? These are the aspects of the joy of being close to Jesus. And that kind of joy impacts how we follow him. It's, it's often been quoted, the, the first question in the Westminster Catechism says this, what is the, the chief end of man? What's the purpose we're here? What's our main goal in life? And the answer is this, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. There's a joy in knowing God. And that is what Jesus is pointing out here in this passage, that we are meant to enjoy him enjoy this relationship and following him and so it's a reminder to us it's it's a reminder that we need to display this joy to others we need to enjoy it ourselves and this is one of the main ways that people can see our distinctness as we follow jesus not just his distinctness i mentioned earlier that the uh, the Pharisees, they noticed the distinctness of Jesus, and that's really where we'll close this morning. They, they saw Jesus cast out this demon at the end of our passage, in verse 32 through 34. And the crowds marveled. They'd never seen anything like this. And the, the Pharisees, they say that phrase, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Can you imagine the audacity to say that to Jesus? 
to say that to the Son of God, that what he's doing is not actually from God, but is from the devil. That's kind of amazing to think about. But they, as we think about it, of course, they did not recognize the truth that Jesus was the Son of God, but also they were opposed to him. We, we understand that, really, we could just simplify it and say they didn't like what Jesus was doing, and they didn't like what he said. That's really what it is. It wasn't more than that. And so that dislike of Jesus led them to these questionings at the beginning, these uh, snarky remarks, you might say, why do you eat with those people? And then here they accuse Jesus. We see that progression, and then eventually that progression continues, that these people who oppose Jesus eventually turn violent, and he dies on the cross at their hands. And so we must know this is a response to Jesus and not be caught off guard ourselves when that happens. If we imitate him, then we are not greater than our master. We expect the same treatment as those who treated Jesus this way. But we hear these hard teachings of Jesus and we must not be people who kick against them and have this reaction against them. When we hear his righteous standard, we should not kick against him, but instead draw close to him. Understand that we, yes, we do not live up to those standards. To confess it ourselves and then not try to explain away why it's okay what I'm doing, but instead to to humbly come and say, Lord, I am a sinner and I need your help in this area of my life, to change. And so we need to move near him to believe this truth, to not be like who live this distinct kind of life, right? Jesus is distinct. He's distinct. He's different than everyone else. And he distinctly shows us reality. He calls us sinners, And then he mercifully moves towards us, not away from us. And following him is unique also. So that we are meant to be unique. We're meant to have a unique joy, a unique difference from the world. And so we move towards Jesus. And we ask him to change us into this distinct kind of person. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we are thankful for your word. God, you are unique. We pray that we would would recognize that truth more and more and be amazed by it and be changed by it. As we see more of your glory, more of your distinctness, that we would be changed to be more and more like you, as 2 Corinthians says. Lord, may we understand the weight, the gravity of these truths, and may you change us. Thank you that you are merciful to us, that you call us sinners and then you move toward us. God, may we do that as well. With other people around us, we can't ignore sin or imagine that it doesn't exist, but may it not impact those relationships. May we actually move towards people, even though we recognize that what they do is wrong and sin. 
so that we would imitate you and your mercy. God, may we be a people who call others to follow you, who go and make disciples. Lord, stir us up to do that, to do that in our neighborhoods, to do that even across the world. And Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning, as we respond to God's word, I would encourage you to think about those few things we talked about, how you can initiate those conversations with others and call them to follow God, how you can be an encouragement. Maybe it's just through inviting someone to church, right? But how can we imitate God and move towards people? And then how can we, do we have joy and how can we work towards joy? It's a command in the Bible to rejoice. And so we want to make sure we're doing that. So let's stand together this morning and respond to the Lord. If you want to talk about what it means to follow Jesus or what it means to join the church, uh, I'll be here during this time to start that conversation. But let's stand together and respond to the Lord. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home, ye who are weary, come home, earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. I'd encourage you, um, you can go ahead and sit down, actually. Um, take a seat. If you want to, encur- uh, to continue to grow in your faith, I'd encourage you to take that next step. Um, be a part of a Sunday school class or come back tonight. We're studying through Malachi. and uh, Like Mike said earlier, we're looking at church matters on Wednesdays, thinking about really the processes and documents of our church and uh, continuing to strengthen those and line those up with the word and make sure they're what they need to be uh, with all the things that continue to change around us in the culture. Uh, But I'd encourage you to take those uh, next steps to continue to grow. This morning, though, is Mike's last day officially as uh, associate pastor here with us. And so I'd be remiss if I didn't say just a little bit about Mike. Uh, We're thankful for him. I've known Mike for only about two years. Most of you have known him longer than I have, but he was one of the first people that I uh, talked to really as the church called me and was in the interview process. He was one of the main people that, uh, you know, talked to me about the church and what it was like here. And they welcomed us when we came down and He's just always been such a, I mean, helpful just doesn't sound like it does justice to it, but he's been such a great help to me, right? And uh, 
he's been a help to our church as well. He's always willing to serve. He's been crucial to the church and working through, navigating through hurricane recovery. and just so many things uh, we could say and you could say and we could go on. But we want to just say thank you to Mike. He's been here for 17, almost 18 years. I think a week shy of 18, if I remember right. But we are thankful that God has brought you here. We're thankful that you get to continue to stay here, Lord willing. And um, like I said, there's more to say, but they'll be around, so we'll have time to say it. And we want to make sure that we show honor to whom honor is due and let you know how much we appreciate you, Mike, and how you've served here. And so thank you. And we'll have a reception for Mike in two weeks, Sunday night, August 29th. So be here for that, and we look forward to that. Let's read the doxology in Jude as we close this morning. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed and sent out this morning.